Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, Joe Hamier. And me, James Walton. And today we're kindly supplying what we hope will be a useful Booker hack. Um, if one of your New Year's resolutions was to catch up on a spot of Booker-related reading, and why wouldn't it be, uh, here's how to knock off three, count them three Booker novels, easily in a single weekend, and still have plenty of time to go on a 50-mile bike ride or watch a lengthy box set with some wine, whichever you prefer. Because what we're doing today is taking a look at three of the very shortest Booker novels that have ever been. Um, but before we do that, Joe, um, what about your New Year's resolutions and uh, a couple of weeks into the new year? How are they going? Oh, um, my one resolution for this year is to chill out. (laughs) I've made this resolution that unless the world is actually literally ending before my eyes, or if someone is dying, you know, someone close to me, obviously, um, I will not be stressed, anxious, worried, etc. And I think it's going really well. I spent the first week of the year sleeping. Yeah. And um, yeah, the report for this week is that I haven't been stressed. <laughs> cool. So you're on coasters. I so. I am. And who knows, maybe in a few episodes time, you'll begin to hear cracks in my voice. Let's <laughs> 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 Let's see if we can get through this episode all. In that calm. Yeah, don't piss me off, James. I'll try not to. to. Uh, I went for the usual one of going on a diet, which was going all right, apart from the bacon sandwich I just had before we uh, did this recording. Yeah, that's fine, though, because I had an English breakfast. So next to me, you were really saintly. No, no, that that did make me feel feel better. Obviously, obviously I've also had to load up on fags, because if you don't give up smoking uh, for the new year, all the people who do in the first few days of January just come over and say do you mind if I have a cigarette yeah so you you do have to have loads do you find that I used to find that really annoying when I smoked actual cigarettes but I rolled them so I had to like go through the whole process of actually rolling someone a cigarette I know this way this way yeah you just hand them out you just hand them out man of pleasure because when people give up smoking it's always like you feel a bit abandoned yeah So, so when you give when when they've Failed after three days. You think, oh, well, (laughs) welcome back. I'm not sorry. Welcome back, my friend. (laughs) I do think about the fact that that our initial bonding point was just smoking. It was, yeah. And and now I've I've left that. But happily, we have firmer ground. You've abandoned me. (laughs) It's Uh, okay, but we're still together. We are, we are. We're like, we're we're going strong. (laughs) And and I must say, looking forward to this episode, as I say, book a hack. How can you read three uh, book of novels in a weekend? Plenty of time. Well, just out of sheer curiosity, how long? did it take you to did you read them all at once or I mean they, they were short I mean I suppose it is different when you're making notes and thinking about what you might say in a podcast yeah that's true but I, but I think for, for for people listening who just want to read it that these will uh, will hurtle by I mean they're, they're not they're not they're not unsubstantial so there's something to them yeah. you, you won't read them you know like a, a, you know 100 pages an hour particularly but most of them are around 100 pages so a couple of hours should should get you through uh, all of the, each of them, I think. Yeah, I did two in one day and then did another one the yeah. day after. Um, okay, so shall I start? Yeah, with why don't you kick us book? off? I believe you're kicking us off with the shortest ever shortlisted book. Is it? Yeah, apparently. According to the book of website, anyway. Oh, okay. We'll trust them. Um, it's uh, Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These. Um, it was shortlisted in 2022, uh, along with another extremely short book, Alan Garner's Treacle Walker, um, and also Elizabeth Strout's O. William, Percival Everett's The Trees, No Violet Bulawayo's Glory, and that year's winner, Shehan Karanatalaka's The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. And you can listen to our interview with Shehan. Yeah, friend of the show. On this, on this podcast as well. Just before Christmas, I believe. Yeah. 
So my copy is 110 pages, very slim. Um, With quite a lot of white space. Yeah. And it's a small novel, but it's got a huge moral and political underbelly. So in 1985, in the weeks leading up to Christmas in a small Irish town, a coal merchant named Bill Furlong is working his busiest season. Bill does well for himself, but the threat of poverty is never far off. There's Thatcher's Britain looming in the background and we're made constantly aware of rising rates of unemployment in the town where Bill lives. Still, we learn about his family, his wife Eileen and his five, quote, flourishing, unquote, daughters, for whom he feels uh, extremely grateful. And we also learn that this gratitude stems in part from his own upbringing, because Bill's mother was an unmarried woman when she had him. There's no higher sin in Catholic Ireland no. at the time. And um, 16 as well, wasn't she? Yeah. and uh, But she was fortunate enough to be taken in by her Protestant employer, Mrs. Wilson, and kept in reasonable comfort until her very sudden death. One day, Bill makes a delivery to the local convent and discovers, locked in the coal shed and surrounded by her own excrement, a young girl called Sarah. Um, and Sarah asks after her baby. And uh, we're just going to hear Sharon Horgan reading a short extract from that moment. When he let down the tailboard and went to open the coal house door, the bolt was stiff with frost. And he had to ask himself if he had not turned into a man consigned to doorways. For did he not spend the best part of his life standing outside of one or another, waiting for them to be opened? As soon as he forced this bolt, he sent something within. But many a dog he'd found in a coal shed with no decent place to lie. He couldn't properly see and was obliged to go back to the lorry for the torch. When he shone it on what was there, he judged by what was on the floor that the girl within had been there for longer than the night. Christ he said. The only thing he thought to do was to take his coat off. And when he did, he went to put it around her. There's no harm, Furlong explained. I've just come with a cold, Lanoff. God love you, child, he said. Come away out of this. When he managed to get her out and saw what was before him, a girl just about fit to stand, with her hair roughly cut, the ordinary part of him wished she'd never come near the place. You're all right, he said. Lean in on me, won't you? The girl didn't seem to want him close, but he managed to get her as far as the lorry, where she leant against the warmth of the bonnet and looked down at the lights of the town and the river and then far away out, much as he had done at the sky. I'm out now, she managed to say after a while. And that was recorded uh, for the 2022 Booker Prize ceremony. And you can uh, find that clip and many others like it on uh, the Booker Prize's website. So the convent, uh, as it turns out, is a Magdalene laundry. Now, for those who don't know, Magdalene laundries operated in Ireland from the 18th century until as recently as 1996. They existed ostensibly to house uh, fallen women, uh, i.e. unmarried mothers and their babies. But the word house is a really poor choice of verb when one considers that these women were brutalised, worked to the bone for no pay or really for any of the civil dignities afforded a citizen, really. Um, their children often died and the women who didn't survive were hidden in unmarked graves. If the children did survive, they're often just taken away from them and given to couples in America and Australia and so yeah. on. Yeah. 
So Bill returns home with this new knowledge of Sarah's existence and the conditions of her life and is left really to the machinations of his conscience. Should he do something to help and therefore honour the moral foundation upon which his own existence was made possible, you know, his mother being taken in by Mrs. Wilson, but in so doing risk the economic and political safety of his family in a deeply Catholic country, a country where the church is bound up with the state? Or should he pretend, as his wife really wants him to, that he never saw a thing in the interests of keeping his family fed, warm and welcome and, in their and, community? And also educated because these same nuns operate the only uh, good school for, for girls in the area. So there's all the girls have already gone there. He yeah. wants his younger girls to go there to have a chance in life. Yeah. But if he alienates the nuns... Who knows what will happen to them and to his business. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Just a note about Claire Keegan herself. It's the first time with this book that she's been shortlisted or even, I think, longlisted for the prize. Um, Her other books, their collections of short stories, um, they include uh, recently published So Late in the Day and Foster. And they are, I think, a couple. Yeah, I think they are both less than 100 pages. Those are the two. So she is sort of versed in this extremely short form. She was born in 1968 in County Wicklow. She had a brief stint in America as a young woman for uni, then Wales, then back to Ireland for a PhD. And um, to my knowledge, at the moment, she still teaches private creative writing classes. And she's also, I guess, what like my generation would call a horse girl. She tames and rears uh, wild horses. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, She says she keeps them very simply, just eating hay in a field. Um, But um, I I genuinely really think that small things like these is kind of like a miniature masterpiece. I think it's probably going to be one of my favourite books from this year, if that's not too soon to say in January. What did you think of it, James? Uh, I thought it was fantastic too. I mean, there's plenty to discuss. I mean, in a way, I wasn't sure if it was the angriest calm book I've ever read or the calmest <laughs> angry book I've ever read. So it's kind oh, of con- the conditions in the laundry, which have since become quite familiar, but in 1985 were still largely unknown, or, or were they? I mean, that's the question is, yeah. did, did the townspeople sort of know what was going on and deliberately turn a blind eye? But it wasn't until the late 90s that all of this was exposed and has since come the series of films. There's one uh, Steve Coogan one, is that? Lamina, that's about that, isn't it? Um, really? Yeah. Oh God, that makes me want Started to watch Judy, it. Yeah, with yeah. Judy Dench. And then there was uh, that BBC show, um, The Woman in the Wall. The Woman in the Wall. There was a a, a, a film called the, uh, the, Ma- the Magdalene Girls, and I mean, it's now become a source of great scandal, and and, and not, I played not a small part, I think, in the sort yeah. of loss of in the death of Catholic Ireland, really, in the end of the Catholic Church's power over Ireland once this all came came. Um, but but she she sort of said about the book, which I think is interesting, which we can discuss, is that. It's quite easy to read it as a as a book about a quiet hero, Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and she, she said rather interest. I think quite interesting. It it's not necessarily just a book about. It's not quite so simple. The, the choice he faces would it actually be an act of self destruction mm. to rescue this girl? Would it be the product of what's clearly a, a midlife crisis? If he, if he was to rescue her, he would put his daughters at risk, and he would um, put his his business and therefore family at risk. So so he's. A bit more tormented, I think, than we think. There's other two things I'd say, kind of uh, as well, is the precision of the sort of Catholic references. So this is 1985, where Catholic Church is still powerful in Ireland, but it's it's beginning to come to an end. So there's one, just one word, really. Right at the beginning, uh, he talks about the nights came on, the frosts took hold again, and the blades of cold slid under the doors, 
and cut the knees off those who still knelt to say the rosary. So they, there are still people needing to say the rosary, but now you need the word still. Yeah. Because they're still going on. And then the, the Angelus Bell, this is the people in it, the workers in his, um, in his coal in his coal and timber yard. Uh, the Angelus Bell rang, that's a uh, call to prayer really. When the Angelus Bell rang at noon, so still Catholic Island, the men laid down their tools, washed the black off their hands and went round to Keogh's where they were fed hot dinners <laughs> and soup and fish and chips on Friday. So it's still fish on Friday, but the, the Angelus is, is now a call to lunch. So there's that sort of beginning to, yeah. beginning to break down. And the other thing, I, I, you, in a book as short as this, I wondered for a while why there were such leisurely descriptions of making the Christmas cake and writing to Santa and, and his, just his work, just him going about his work. Um, you know, when there's all this, well, there's this massive question in the background. And I, I have developed a theory, which is the influence of uh, W.H. Auden's, I think, moderately famous poem, uh, Musée de Beaux-Arts, about, mm -hmm. which he wrote in, um, after going to a Belgian art gallery about, and it's, it's the one that starts off, about suffering they were never wrong, the old masters, how well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. Yeah. So while this huge suffering is going on in the background, people are just going about their business. Yeah. And, and backing up my theory on that is that that poem goes on to mention Bruegel's poem Icarus, where Icarus falls from the sky and nobody, nobody notices life goes on. And in fact, the cover is a, is a, is a Bruegel painting. Not, not the same one, but I think, I think that'll do for my theory for that. <laughs> well, I feel like Claire Keegan has put this maybe slightly uh, less poetically than you did, James, but in a profile she did with Guardian, she said, when I was young, my mother taught me that if I went to the butcher and was choosing a piece of beef to roast, it should be marbled with fat. And I actually see good prose in the same way, marbled with what doesn't seem to be necessary. But it still, it still gets in quite a lot of stuff about speaking, I suppose, autobiographically, as you tend to do when thinking about books. It's very good on fatherhood. Um, yeah. Th there's one bit where he talks about the deep private joy he has when he looks at his daughters and, and that they're his. But also, but also accompanied by sort of anxiety for what's going to happen when they get out in the world. Yeah. Um, I, for many reasons, am not a father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I thought um, the way I sort of related to this book was, I mean, I, I've seen that some people describe it as historical fiction because it is so time specific and, and context dependent on the idea of the Madeleine laundries. But um, I really saw a lot of, um, I, I guess, the small moral decisions that we all kind of have to make on a daily basis um, when reading the news taking place in this book. Um, do you act on the terrible things that you know are happening around you or do you just continue with your day? And I was really touched by this passage um, where Bill is, I guess, having what Claire Keegan calls his midlife crisis. And he it goes... Always it was the same furlong thought. Always they carried mechanically on without pause to the next job at hand. What would life be like, he wondered, if they were given time to think and reflect over things? Might their lives be different or much the same? Or would they just lose the run of themselves? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's terrific. And also, I mean, I, I know it's, it's such a, a, a cliche to do, you know. The Second World War, particularly blokes of my age, but it's just like it's just like the Nazis. But I think I think that 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 question of of a people who like the town sort of knows what's going on in the laundries or could know or might know, but chooses not to. And 
and I think it's quite, it's quite interesting in a way that he, it, it's Bill who's the one who's much agonised about this, and his wife is far more practical. So when he says, "Look, I've seen this this girl in this culture," what what, what do I do? And Eileen, his wife, says, "If you want to get on, there's things you have to ignore." Yeah, but I think this is really where the kind of brilliance of this book lies, because we're making Eileen potentially sound a bit heartless, but I really didn't see her as a villain at all in apart from the one kind of dig that she makes at Bill because of his mother but I never really saw her as a villain because when when he tells her about finding Sarah in the coal shed her concern is literally just for her children and you can't yeah. fault her for that or can you you see that's that, that, that I think that's the question that this book holds up but when she well, says if you want to get on those things you have to ignore that might just be true I mean, we all like to think that we, we, we'd we all be heroic in all circumstances, but would we? No, we wouldn't be. I think this is proven to us on a on a daily basis. I mean, I don't know what news you read this morning, but um, I, there's, there are certainly various marches that I didn't go on this week, bits of news that I like consciously avoided speaking about with my friends because it was the end of the working day and I just wanted to go to bed, you know. And you've got your New Year's resolution as well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and don't stress, uh, unless the world is ending, which it might be. But anyway, I, I guess my point is maybe Eileen seems kind of much more sharp or pragmatic, but I think the scenes of her making the Christmas cake, ironing all of her family's clothes, reading their letters, her children's letters to Santa, and then deciding, like taking an hour at the end of the day to decide what the best gifts she can reasonably get her daughters with the money they have is. I think all of those scenes serve to show you that she's not just being heartless. She has like a whole ecosystem within this house to keep afloat, you know, in the way that she says to Bill, you know, kind of Bill worries that he doesn't do enough for the house because she's working so hard. And she goes, no, no, you've kept us afloat. You've kept your business afloat. That's all we need from you. And then what I do is to make sure that we are all fed comfortable with the money that you provide. And I just, like, sure, you could read her as flinty, but I think the, the, time that's spent focusing on all the domestic labour she engages in really balances out this idea of her going, look the other way. She has to, otherwise what does she have? Yeah. I still think we are meant to admire Bill more. Oh, without a doubt, like, especially for sort of, I guess, honouring his mother's legacy, is that yeah. the right word? And, and in the short book, there's also quite a a lot about his backstory and little plot twists on that as well. Yeah. Okay, well, a book that we both agree is terrific and well worth the maximum two hours of your time, uh, Claire Keegan, Small Things Like These. And so from the shortest ever shortlisted book to the shortest ever winner, this is uh, Penelope Fitzgerald's Offshore from 1979. Um, it was also a surprise winner, uh, as apparently several newspaper headline writers had already decided that the prize that year would go to A Bend in the River by V.S. Naipaul, such a big gun that he later won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And in fact, uh, according to one of the judges that year, Hilary Sperling, uh, the reaction to Offshore's victory was so kind of shocked, people were so like, amazed that it had won, that that reaction caused uh, Fitzgerald, quote, pain and humiliation ever after. 
Uh, and on a happier note, you could, uh, I think, argue um, quite convincingly that her reputation is now higher than Naipaul's, who's perhaps faded away in recent years, while she's now regularly acclaimed as one of the great novelists of the late 20th century. Uh, mainly, I think, well, particularly, I think, for her later historical novels, notably The Blue Flower, published when she was 79. Uh, which won a National Books Critics Circle Award in the US, whose previous winners have included John Updike, Philip Roth, and Tyler, and Toni Morrison. Um, so who was she? I suppose you would want to know, Jo. <laughs> she was born in uh, 1916 to an intellectual family. Her father was um, Edmund, uh, who later became editor of Punch, which was quite a, a thing to be in those days. Uh, uh, Uncle Ronald became a Catholic convert and, and a priest, produced a very influential Catholic translation of the Bible, um, and... Well, his biography was written in 1959 by no less than Evelyn War, And uh, it sounds as if uh, Penelope was pretty uh, clever too. Uh, she went to Somerville College, uh, Oxford, where she got a congratulatory first. And that's where you um, you do your exam. The, your tutors call you in and you think, oh, they're going to ask you know interview me to see whether it's a, I should get a first or a second. And when you go in through the door, they all stand up and applaud. <laughs> so, so, so that's what she got, congratulatory first. In the 1950s, she ran a literary magazine with her husband, Desmond, who was a barrister, but who had come back from the war an alcoholic and was uh, later done for forging signatures on checks, disbarred from the legal profession, and they fell on hard times. Uh, to help out, she taught at the Italia Conti Stage School and the Queen's Gate School, where uh, one of her pupils was uh, the future Queen Camilla, oh. very much a friend of the Booker Prize. Um, her first book was 1975, when she was 59, a biography of the uh, pre-Raphaelite artist Ernest Byrne Jones, and her first novel uh, came in 1977 with The Golden Child. Her second was The Bookshop, 1978, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and then Offshore, which won in 1979. And those early works are all autobiographical, drawing on different aspects of that pretty varied early life. And Offshore itself draws on a pretty low point, which was when she was living on a barge on the Thames by Battersea Reach uh, in the early 1960s, which is where and when the book takes place. Uh, the main character, if there is one, is Nena, mother of two children, aged six and 12, her husband has left her mainly because he doesn't want to live on a boat. Her neighbours in this rather strange community include Morris, who's a, a male prostitute and her main confidant. Uh, Richard, who's the sort of boss there. He served in the Navy during the war, been torpedoed a few times, and seems as if he just couldn't quite leave the sea or the water behind. So he's there, much to the dismay of his wife, Laura, who hates living on a boat. There's an artist called Willis. There's a few others as well, but they're all basically adrift in their lives, uh, metaphorically, as well as literally. Um, and what I like about this book is that Fitzgerald regards them all with a completely beady eye. They don't get away with much. She knows what she knows what's going on. But it's also a sort of kindly and amused eye, I think. Mm. Almost an epigraph for the book could be, Lord, what fools these mortals be. Except that might sound like outright mockery, but she's not mockering. It's, it's very sympathetic for all these rather lost souls. So I did like it an awful lot. Uh, Joe, what, what do you reckon? Yeah, I liked it well enough. I think my only reservation is that it was such a large cast of characters. I mean, there are loads that you haven't yeah. mentioned as well, like Nana's daughters and the... Who are, who are interested in both in their different ways, aren't they? Yeah, and her sister in Canada and the, you know, uh, cousin that comes to visit them. And... Um, I think whilst all of them have really distinct personalities, um, foibles and, you know, amusing traits, I really enjoyed. Um, there's There are, I think, two passages where Nana, uh, as a way to go over the um, kind of points of her separation yeah. with her husband, puts herself on trial in her head. Yeah, and I love that bit. And it makes for, for really fantastic kind of 
back and forth between, I guess, her conscience and her heart um, is actually as good as any kind of like marital disagreement you'll read in any book, even though one party is absent. Um, but I did sort of sometimes feel like there was just too much happening in a book that was only 181 pages. Like, it took me a while to, like you get, I, I guess like one of the motifs in this book is the fact that the the boats that everyone lives on are all tied together. And so when when one person's misfortune occurs, it impacts the rest of the community and whether it's um, Willis who has to go live um, with other people or, you know, yeah, Morris's... Bird, bird sinks, I don't think that's a massive spoiler. Yeah. Or, the, 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 the rest of them re react very kindly. Yeah, or Morris's kind of sex work that and, and the dodgy people he lets into his boat that kind of... It, you know, comes back to bite poor Richard um, in the head, actually, quite badly. Um, it There are these echoes and reverberations across the entire plot. And it's very hard, as I say, in a book that's this short and compact to kind of keep a hold of everything. I think with a cast of characters this big or this large, you'd be looking at a book that's at least like 300 pages to like get into the rhythm of knowing them all. Uh, I suppose that's what I really liked about it because I, yeah. I do think you get to know the ball. But like, and again, but I think it's just um, uh, as with Claire King, I suppose, as with great small books, is just how concise she can be. Again, yeah. is, is, I think this is, is a word that does a lot of heavy lifting, um, uh, which is, oh, this is Richard talking about, uh, he's thinking about Laura, his wife. So this is Richard, the sort of boss who's Laura unhappy on the boat. Uh, Laura's problem was that she had not had enough to do, no children though she hadn't said anything about this recently. Now, that word recently, <laughs> it means, first of all, on the one hand, it means that she's obviously said quite a lot about it in the past. Yeah. And on the other, <laughs> and on the other hand, it also means that she's given up mentioning it now. So so in the, the entire arc of the marriage there, in that one word recently, I think. Yeah. I, 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 think, that, I think that's brilliant. And, and things like that again and again. When we first saw it, see her, Laura is... Richard's sort of lead, leading a meeting with the with the with the with the other boat people, and she's below deck. I'm not very good on my nautical terms. <laughs> In the galley is that the kitchen? I, I think have no, no I think idea. Like and uh, anyway, she's sort of doing that while he's while he's leading leading the people. And he goes down to see how she's doing, and this is the first time we have a. Laura was cutting something up into small pieces. So basically, it doesn't matter what she's cutting up. You know, she just she couldn't care less. Time and again, I I think that. I mean, I could give several more examples, but I'll, I'll, I'll hold back for now. But that does allow her to give real yeah. depth to, as you say, a surprisingly large cast for such a short book. And I think enable you to keep them all. She gives them all an amazing Jew. You know, there's yeah. the there's there's the um um. Martha, who is the older sister, the twelve year old. Sorry, the, yeah. So, so the twelve year old daughter of Nena. Um, who's a bit like sort of Safi and Abfab. She's the sort of responsible one and she has to, in a way, look after her mother. And then um, she has this, she has one great moment where her and this this rather glamorous Austrian aristocratic kid who's about 16 or 17, I think, sh shows up and she shows him around the King's Road in Chelsea, which is quite close by. Yeah. Um, and he's sort of slightly worried about it. And he says, um, you know, I think you could be heading for a very serious depression. <laughs> and, and the reaction is, Martha felt flattered. It seemed to her she had never been taken seriously before, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, against a, just the world, a world in that. Um, 
Yeah, I did really like, um, so Martha's younger sister is Tilda and when they go out on the King's Road, which I actually really love, I have this like great affection for portrayals of like a 60s London that I never lived in. Um, but she she says to her younger sister Tilda, I'll give you anything you like within reason to go back to the boats and stay there. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's with a boy for the first time. Yeah. And it's so sweet. It is, yeah, you're right. It is really good at sort of, like, that. that is a whole sisterly relationship in, like, one sentence. <laughs> yeah. and, she, and she loves Tilda, but yeah, just, just yeah. bugger off now. <laughs> I'm, I'm with a boy. So we're told that these people are creatures neither of firm land nor water. There is a certain metaphor to them living where they live. Yeah. So this is when we first meet them, really. So they're very near the Chelsea shore where loads of people live with sensible occupations and adequate amounts of money. But, but these these people, but a certain failure, distressing to themselves to be like other people, caused them to sink back with so much else that drifted or was washed up into the mud moorings of the great tideway. And they even to sell the idea of selling their boats, which they, they some of they fantasize about moving back to dry land, but to sell your craft, to leave your reach, to leave the reach, that's Battersea Reach, was felt to be a desperate step, like those of the amphibians when in the earliest stages of the world world's history they took ground. Many of these species perished in the attempt. Um, so they're, they're, they're sort of stuck down. And um, in a way, Morris, the, the male prostitute, is in some ways the sort of conscience of the book. She was, actually, just as an aside, I don't know if Fitzgerald said that, that he was based on a real person mm. uh, who she really liked, uh, who actually committed suicide in real life. She didn't want to have that in the book because, because she couldn't bear to bear yeah. to do that to the to this guy. This is So this is the, the Morris that sort of should have been. But he speaks what are called somber truths, and one of them is, Decision is torment for anyone with imagination. Yes, I did like that line a lot. Um, so they're so they're sort of half and half people, creatures, creatures neither of firm land nor water, as I say. So that's Offshore by Penelope Fitzgerald, winner of the 1979 Booker Prize. And now we're going to switch gears slightly and move to... You, you say slightly. <laughs> and move to a book from the International Booker Prize. Boulder by Eva Balthazar, translated by Julia Sanchez and shortlisted in 2023, which was, of course, the year that Time Shelter by Georgi Gospodinov and translated by Angela Rodell won. Friend of the show. You can listen to our interview with him from around yeah, the end of last year. Both of them. Eva Balthazar is actually the first Catalan writer to be shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. Uh, she's the author of 10 collections of poetry and um, three novels. And the book actually has echoes of her own life. So the premise is actually incredibly simple. Boulder, so named by her partner, Samsa, is uh, um, a woman from Barcelona and a cook on a merchant ship. And she meets Samsa while docked in southern Chile, where the two begin a really intense uh, sexual and emotional relationship, albeit somewhat long distance as they have to wait for Boulder's ship to dock before they can meet. Um, we're going to play you short clip of Michelle de Swartz reading from the book because I don't think I can do justice to quite how sensual it is but you need to know to get an idea of the book so here's the clip It's five in the evening it's already dark out I order coffee drop my bags on the floor and make my way to one of the few seats available next to a pair of townies and a boy busy dunking his fingers in the tea. She's at a table in the back with five or six other people. 
white blonde hair, swimming shoulders. I can't not look at her. Like, when you peer over the edge of a boat and come face to face with a shark. I've got to add sugar in my coffee. I burn my tongue. I feel the hardness of the rock in which desire has become lodged, as if for all time. I look at her and she feels every corner of me. My gaze is a rope that catches her and draws her in. She looks up, sees me, she knows. We spend the night together. I drink her like I've been raised wandering the desert. I swallow her as if she were a sword, little by little and with enormous care. And so eventually, you know, once they've sort of been together for a while, Boulder agrees at Samsa's request to settle into domestic routine in Reykjavik, very different country, where the latter has gotten a job. And domestic life really doesn't sit well with Boulder, but she tries to make the best of it. That is until Samsa decides that she wants a baby. And I'm just going to read how Boulder responds to this. <laughs> I tamp down the truth and say, all right, let's do it. I don't tell her that what I want is not to be a mother. And from there, what we get is essentially the breakdown of uh, the relationship over what is usually regarded as the very thing all serious couples should be striving for. Um, and it's a really, like really, really small, I mean, sort of 105, yeah, 105 page book. It's deeply sensual, but I don't think you can underestimate the extent to which, for all its sensuality, the text kind of really rigorously applies itself to the project of dismantling the linguistic and emotional associations between the words mother and woman um, and kind of cleaves them completely apart so that what you have essentially is Boulder learning how to accommodate the care she feels for her eventually um, lovely daughter, Tina, um, without sort of considering herself, or I guess it wouldn't be daughter then, without considering herself a mother. Yes, all, all, all that you say is abs absolutely true. But Boulder herself is a terrific character because she's not in the least bit ingratiating, is she? I mean, sort mm. of the opposite. So it's also very good on the sort of just the practicalities of how the pregnancy happens. And when it when it, when it it first happens, her first thought is, oh no, I won't be able to smoke inside anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a way, I'm, I'm, I suspect some some, some men will recognise, you know, she, she, she's feeling the un unwanted partner. She's, she realises she's sli sort of slightly beside the point now, now that the now that the mother and child are, are together. And she's also, it's also kind of kind of resentful as well. So she's resentful. She feels slightly betrayed that, in a way, mm. that um, Samsa has gone off with another with another person, which is which is the baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and also, it's also sometimes quite funny, again, th th things that parents will recognise, when they move into a, a bigger place when um, when the baby's two months old and they, you know, they move their, their own little stuff, but the baby's absolutely got tons of clutter with her. And she says, two months isn't nearly enough to have hoarded so much wealth. <laughs> uh, in fact, she is quite, a, in a way, almost a bit of an old school bloke. <laughs> well, in the sense, there's one bit where she says, when I put her in a place, she turns on the waterworks. That, yeah. That's very much. And she also, you know, goes out boozing, eyeing up other women. Yeah. Um, and then she eventually picks up another woman and, uh, and, and then 
called Anna, and, and then re reflects later. It takes three months to exhaust all interest in a body. I leave Anna the way I picked her up without stopping to wonder if there might be a real person inside. Yeah. As I say, not ingratiating, but yet somehow likable. But it, when they decide to go for the home birth, she thinks, well, that's a mistake. But then I'm not the one who's going to be losing buckets of blood. Yeah. <laughs> um, the attitude the baby itself is very is mixed because she does sort of love the baby. But... Mm. Um, well, I think but, you're but, sort but, of actually, underselling actually, it in a way because um, the really the one of the reasons you still like Boulder is because, in spite of the fact that she doesn't want to be a mother, um, she still has a really beautiful relationship with Tina, the child, that is wholly separate to the kind of like weird parasitic relationship that Samsa has with the child. So there's this gorgeous passage that goes. Um, while while Boulder is taking care of yeah. of Tina, um, when she sleeps nuzzled up against me like this, eyes flickering behind her eyelids, I feel as if life is facing up to me and saying the time has come for me to believe and let my guard down. When she wakes, I freshen her up, change her clothes, make her some baby food. She loves listening to the radio. She treats me to a performance that she never puts on in front of Samsa. She scoots around the kitchen on her butt bumping along as she whistles like a kettle and glancing up at me, all laughter and drool. This is her way of asking for the radio to be turned on. Or at least I think it is, because the minute I do, she gets down on all fours and scurries over to me. Then I take her in my arms and we dance. I'm a terrible dancer. I have no sense of rhythm or any interest in any move in moving my body in sync with another, except during sex. But a baby's willpower is one and whole. It knows exactly how to build everything up and tear it all down, how to make mountains and raise them to the ground. So I do something I never have with Samsa. I hold Tina's body to me and explore the intimacy that wells up when the world closes around us. We dance. And that's a beautiful relationship. It's, 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 two things on that. When you're saying she doesn't want to be a mother, she, doesn't, she also doesn't obviously doesn't want Samson to be one either. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but that bit, I, I, I wonder, you know, as you read on, I'm beginning to lose faith in this. But when I, that phrase, when she looks at me, I feel as if life is facing up to me and saying the time has come for me to believe and let my guard down. Now, in most books, that would be a moment of glorious redemption. But in this book, is it possible that that's slightly horrifying being asked to let, let her guard down? Because letting her guard down is something she never wants to do. There's a bit, bit like that later where... Um, she's talking about the baby and says it's like she's letting out a stream of light that lifts all the ugliness from the world I had no idea a child could be such a huge obstacle <laughs> <laughs> so in a way that that I, I, I think there's still an ambivalence to being asked to let her guard down yeah. maybe, maybe does that she, maybe wants you know is asking to let her guard down and that's a not a good thing to ask Boulder but I necessarily. think well I don't know I think the way I read this book is is that the problem, like Boulder's problem essentially with Samsa is that Samsa is asking her to make too many binary choices. The way that Samsa operates is so weirdly heterosexual considering that it's a gay relationship, you know? Um, it's, it's like modelled on this really weird nuclear family principle that like I'm not surprised that Boulder, you know, she tries her best, but I'm not surprised that she just keeps... I really want to swear because this is such like a. <laughs> I know I can't. Oh, oh, yeah, so you, no, 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 but I'm not surprised that she keeps mouth, messing up. <laughs> messing up. Okay, we we get what the swear might have been. Yeah. Uh, I like that it can be this, in a way, further along. I did see one interview with with Eva Baltazar where she's she's talking about how gay novels that she first read they have to be about coming out, you know, because that's yeah. what they had to be. And this is so far beyond that now, isn't yeah. it? Like, or it's just much more. 
in a way, interesting and complicated and further on than that. So that's Boulder by Eva Balthazar. And that pretty much concludes for short books that you can read in January and look deeply intellectual yeah. while only spending maybe about three hours total. <laughs> three top book of books under your belt. And uh, yeah, you've still got the rest of the weekend free. They are not the only short books in the Booker Library. Um, we've been debating, uh, you know, to what extent short books kind of get shafted, uh, uh, you know, during the kind of Booker Prize longlisted, longlisting and shortlisting process. But actually, when I think about it, there are a few that we've covered on this podcast. Um, the Sea by John Banville and The Vegetarian by Han Kang yeah. come to mind. Those are great episodes, if I do say so myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're also a Moon Tiger fan, aren't you, Pin? I am. And that was another quite short winner, wasn't it? That is quite a short winner. And you can That's visit thebookerprizes.com uh, to see an interview that I and our producer John did with Penelope at home uh, about Moon Tiger. Penelope Lively, author of The Moon Tiger. I, I, I'll mention a couple of short ones, um, uh, which is um, both sort of coincidentally, but rather pleasingly, um, either, well, shortlisted or longlisted the year that the, the winner was The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, which is by far the longest ever mm. uh, booker winner. Um, and one is The Testament of Mary by Con Toybean. Quite different from his other books. This is Mary as in Mother of Jesus, um, with a sort of alternative view of her life, but comes in at a, at a, at a pithy 96 pages. And um, longlisted that same year, The Spinning Heart by Donal Ryan, who... Um, this was his debut. I, I, he's really, um, yes, this was his debut, and he's he's establishing himself more and more with every book. I think this is a, a book set at the um, just after the Celtic Tiger thing had collapsed, and uh, as familiar from readers of the Beasting by Paul Murray uh, last year, shortlisted, and this is uh, an amazing kaleidoscope of different voices from the same small Irish town, mm -hmm. uh, reflecting on what that all means. Uh, again, funny and tender and great, uh, and again won't take up much of your time. And just to remind you, there are three short books for your book hack today: were Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These, Penelope Fitzgerald's Offshore, and Boulder by Eva Balthazar. Translated by Julia Sanchez. We're back next week with the Burns Night Special, in which we're going to be discussing the all-conquering, much-loved Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. That's it for this week. Remember, you can watch the extracts from Boulder and small things like these on our YouTube channel. And I really, really, really recommend the one from Boulder. <laughs> uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Substack at The Booker Prizes. Until next time, bye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by me, Joe Hamier, and also James Walton. It is produced and edited by Kevin Loyola, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It is a Daddy's Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes. 